Well, good morning. Well, you guys, come on in. Looks forward to having you here this morning. It's so good to have you. You know, I, I kind of like the winter, but uh, when we get to the springtime, that's my favorite time of the year. I just love being able to go out in the springtime and just take a walk. I took a nice long walk this morning, and uh, just such a beautiful thing to be able to walk out in God's nature and just be able to see the beauty, see the birds flying in. It's just, I don't know, I just I love it. So, And it's even better to be in the worship service to worship God. So it's good having you all here this morning. Just a couple of quick announcements uh, this morning we had Sunday school, but next week we will not have Sunday school. This evening we will have our psalm study, but next week we will not have our psalm study. And the reason why is we will be celebrating uh, Resurrection Sunday. So next Friday we were going to start Celebration Weekend, and we're going to have our Good Friday service. It will be here at 6 p.m. on Friday. We look forward to having all of you here on Friday evening for Good Friday service. And then on Sunday, we're going to have one worship service, and that will be at 10.30 a.m. No Sunday school this uh, next week, and no um, psalm study next week. Other than that, I think that's all I have in my announcements. Uh, I'll encourage you to go to the website uh, for more information. And if you're new to our church, welcome. It's great to have you. There's a welcome center right outside the door. We would love it to know if you that you're here. And we'd love to give you a gift as well. So uh, head out to the worship center. I mean, the welcome center right outside our service after the service is over. All right, let us open in prayer. There's a psalm that I uh, go to often, and you know I love the psalms, and this psalm is one great one, so I'm going to ask you to hear this as we begin. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made what? Heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade. At your right hand, the sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your comings and goings from this time forth. And forevermore. What a blessed word. Did you hear the continual word? Keep you. Uh, this world is a little crazy. And uh, life feels uncomfortable. Don't fear because God is your keeper. He keeps you. Would you pray with me? So Lord, this morning, Father, we turn on the news stations and we find ourselves overwhelmed Overwhelmed with what's happening in the world, overwhelmed with the insecurities, the doubts, the fears. And Lord, we hear it from people in our neighborhood. We hear it from people at work. We hear it from people in our families. We even hear it within our own hearts and our minds, Father. We fear and we're so anxious, Father, and we're so worried. But Lord, I pray that you would remind us that we look to the hills. And where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, you, who made heaven and earth. If you could speak this world into existence, Father, you can deal with any struggle that we have in this world. So remind us of your power, your mercy, your kindness, and remind us that you, you keep us, Lord. 
Lord, I pray for those that are struggling right now with a number of health issues. Lord, we've been praying for uh, Dave Mercer. He's back, Father. We praise you for that. But he's still in that recovery mode. Lord, I pray for him. I pray for Jim Ash in his recovery and wisdom for the doctors. Father, I pray for Diana Kelly. It was good to see her last week, but we pray for continued help for her, Father, the struggles that she's gone through. I pray that you continue to bless her and work in her life as well as in Victor's life. Lord, for Gary, um, he's gone through a number of different treatment modalities here lately, Father, and one of them is going to keep him from us for months, Lord. Um, But, Lord, I pray that he is still with us as he is connecting with us online. I pray that he would remind himself of the fact that you're near him and that we're praying for him. Pray continued mercies for Tom Camella, Father, as he is dealing with his struggles. Lord, thank you for the recovery that he has. Pray for Greta, Father. She got home from the surgery. Pray that you would continue to bring healing to her and restoration. I pray for this service. Pray for my brother, Pastor Tim, as he lays a burden that is so heavy on his heart that he would share that with us and that we would hear the beauty of valuing one another. And then as we go to the Lord's table, Lord, I pray that we remind ourselves of what your son has done for us and help us to be blessed because you have blessed us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God is able, he will never fail. Alright, here we go. God is able. God is able. He will never fail. He is almighty God. Greater than all we see. Greater than all we ask. He has done great. Lift it up, lift it up, he defeated the grave, race to life, our God is able, in his name we with us. God's on our side. God is with us. God is on our side. He will make a way. Yes, he will. Far above all we know. Far above all we hope. He's done great things. He has done great things. Lift it up. Lift it up.
God is with us, so go before. And God is with us, and He will go before. He will never leave us. He will never leave us. And God is for us, and He has opened us. He will never fail us. He will never fail us. God is with us. Sing the uh, doxology with us. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above heaven. And he's coming on the clouds. He's coming on the clouds. The kings and kings will bow down. And every chain will break as broken hearts declare. We declare, for who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. And every knee will bow before Him. 
And our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. His blood breaks the chains, and every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb. Oh, every knee will bow before Him. So open up the gates and make way. So open up the gates, make way before the King of Kings. Our God, our God who comes to save, is here to set the captives free. For who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is alive. Let's sing this with confidence. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? And who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? And who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? And who can stop the Lord? All His plans remain. And who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? And who can stop the Lord? Our God. And our God is the Lion.
Uh, you're the Savior, say. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. A child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as Yes, he did. Lord, now indeed, Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thy, yes, you alone, Lord, I can change the leper's spots and mount the heart. Only Jesus can change us. Jesus paid it all. Before the throne, and when before the throne I stand in him, this I'll say, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat, Jesus paid it all. stain he washed their white as snow he washed their white as snow he washed their white as snow Let's sing this with all that's within us, so praise the one.
Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. The sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Sin had left, and sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as God, we're in awe of that fact. The sin had left a crimson stain, something I could not get out of my soul, a stain that I could not remove, not by good works, not by telling myself I'm good, not by others telling me, oh, you're a nice person, you're a good person. The stain remains, and it wasn't until Jesus Christ that I realized Jesus Christ saved my soul, that I came to faith in Jesus Christ and my soul is washed clean. I'm always saying on a Sunday morning that I know we're not perfect people. And that's true, but what's incredible is the fact that Jesus, that God the Father looks at us as perfect people because of Jesus. He looks through Jesus to us and sees us as sinless because of his son's sacrifice. And if we just simply believe that there is a God, that the God of the Old Testament, the New Testament is the true God, that he did send his son to die for us, that we can have eternal life through him. If we believe that, we're set free forever. We struggle, but we're set free. We come each Sunday because we struggle, but we're also set free. We rejoice in that. We rejoice in that freedom. Of course we do every Sunday. We also struggle. God, thank you that you see both that. You see all of that. That we can sing songs on Sunday morning here in New Jersey and be safe. And there are people around the world that that's not the case. It is both light and dark in this world, God. And you know that. And we celebrate that this week. We have this amazing triumphant entry today that we celebrate Palm Sunday. All the hope. I'm sure the disciples had all that hope wrapped up in them. That here's the king coming to Jerusalem to set us free, the Israelites, to set us free from Roman occupation. But then you died as we learn on Good Friday. And that was devastating for the disciples. I'm sure that was hope killing. But then you rose again uh, three days later. And in so doing, that's the ultimate goal. It wasn't just the freedom of Jerusalem and Roman occupation. It was the freedom of the souls of people forevermore. That we can revel in that today, God, it is a miracle and a mystery. And we thank you this morning that Pastor Tim will help us understand that a little bit better, the miracle and the mystery that is our salvation. And as we participate in communion, may that be true too. May we, may we a little bit more understand the miracle and mystery that is our salvation. God, we thank you for this time of worship. We ask God now as we listen that you would open our ears to hear and that even verses we've heard a thousand times would be new. We thank you for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I want to welcome uh, each of you to our service this morning, and as we do that, I'd like you to look to the book of Ephesians chapter 6, <clears throat> which we finished a few weeks ago uh, before we started the study in the book of Ruth, but having come to the conclusion of our study in the book of Ruth, I want to do, <clears throat> kind of do a, just a, a repurposing of this text 
uh, along the lines of understanding the value of our life together as Christians. <clears throat> Felt kind of rushed when I preached on this text because we were dealing with the topic of spiritual warfare, which in and of itself could be a series of discussions. But it is certainly a text <clears throat> that puts a focus on the necessity and importance of relationships in our lives. Uh, the book of Ephesians ends with a typical greeting. And so I think there's a tendency on our part to miss the relational elements that are packed in this brief portion of scripture that talks about the implications of our life together. So you can turn to the book of Ephesians. And as you're there, <clears throat> I want you to begin with, with me in verse 5 of chapter 1. So just flip back to, to, to chapter 1. I want you to just get a vision of how Paul throughout this book is casting a robust picture of the body of Christ in terms of relationships. It is a, a grand vision in a very divided world. So in Ephesians 1, 5, Paul says, God decided in advance <clears throat> to adopt us into his own family by the gospel. That is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. So the first thing I noticed that as God is calling the church into existence, there is something about building that community that is giving pleasure to God himself, for it is his church. Chapter two, verse 19. <clears throat> In a world where there were insiders and outsiders, here's what Paul says to the church, Jew and Gentile. He says, so now you are no longer strangers and, far and foreigners. You are citizens along with God's people. Together we are his household. We are his family is the implication of that. In verse 21, he talks about us being God's nation and God's temple. That literally has the idea of us being a dwelling place for God himself. So what would the picture be? The picture is this. Paul sees the church as the group through which he represents himself to the world that we live in. All right, so that God's manifest presence is made known through the life of his church. Chapter three, verse six, he says this. He says, and this is God's plan, God's design that both Jew and Gentile who now believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Okay, so you find this idea of this community in which distinctions dissolve and in which and through which the glory of God is revealed and manifested to the world around us. <clears throat> so what are the implications of that broader understanding of what God is building, what God is doing corporately in the church. I think it is this. In a divided world that separates me, individualism, that celebrates what makes me unique and valuable, we are called to value belonging and caring and serving others. By the gospel and by new birth, trust in Christ, God has drawn us into a new relationship. And the way he pictures and captures that relationship for the world around us is by using the word, we are in fact family. 
The ideas are simply this. We belong to each other in family, and in family, we have shared responsibilities. Okay, it's one of the things that I think parents uh, struggle with teaching their children, right? That for quite a while, life centers on them. See my little granddaughter up here with us. Life is all about her. When she walks in you or when she's carried in, you oogle at her, you smile at her. The whole world focuses on them. At some point, however, every parent can relate to the frustration <clears throat> that the child seems to continue to think, oh, you know what, Ed, I have water here. Let me try that. <laughs> you can tell Ed's a nurse, right? <clears throat> Like, seriously, I'm wondering what happened to me. I think I broke something. It's, it's just more, because I have a, a torn tendon in my shoulder that I'm working on getting addressed, and now my voice box is giving out. So, Dave Allegher has always said to me, life after 60 is a wonderful thing. <laughs> so since we're body, I need your help, okay? <clears throat> so forget that my voice sounds funny. And I'll try to forget that it feels funny. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, in that, in that family uh, relationship, raising our children and maturing your children, the hope is that eventually they will realize that they should be contributors to the whole. That they are part of something bigger than just themselves and that there is a whole world of reality outside of what they are conscious of. Okay. And for the church, that is our continuing struggle, isn't it? It's why Paul repeatedly addresses this issue of understanding that we are part of something in which we find great joy, the family of God, the household of God, his temple, his dwelling. But in that sphere of relationships, we have shared obligations and responsibilities. And what makes a church healthy is when people within the context of that fellowship understand that, believe it, and allow it to affect how they relate to each other. The text that we're going to look at this morning gives us a very practical example in, in a very simple way of how life together works, about how we act as a family. Paul's envisioning this, this incredible diversity and variety that is present, people from all different races. And as he ends this book, he focuses his attention on how needs in his life are being met and how he is seeking to meet needs in the lives of others. And the question I want to put for you this morning is this. Would you allow God through his word, as I share it to the best of my ability, and I'm going to lean on various implications, but would you allow God to shake up your routine, to adjust your priorities, to include concern for and actual valuing of the preciousness of others? May God challenge us, and these are my thoughts, God move me beyond me and mine to them and theirs. You know, I don't have any problem focusing on my wants, needs, and desires. You can, you can ask my wife. I am very savvy at caring about me. But God has called us to a lifestyle of self-denial. God has called us to a lifestyle that requires a miracle. He has called us to have the heart and mind of Jesus. So when we ended our discussion at our 
last sermon in Ephesians 6, we ended in Ephesians 6 looking at the, at the reality of spiritual warring, of spiritual battle, about the, the unseen enemy that we find ourselves in antagonism with. So 10 to 17 is this idea of preparing for warring spiritually. And the implication in warring is that warring takes a community, okay? You do not declare war on nations in the context of nations as an individual, okay? Warring is something that is done in the context of community. So 10 through 17 is calling us to individual preparation that leads to strength and health of the group as a whole, but the serious conflict that we are called to engage in requires more than singular people. Okay, I was thinking through this, and I'm not, I'm not real adept at all the terms related to military establishments and institutions, but I did think of this. When countries go to war, we don't send a hero. We send an army. We send a team, and when God desires that we would do warring in this world for the, for the glory of his name, not against people, because the text is very clear in verse 12 that it is against principalities and powers. It is against Satan's opposition to individuals that we go and do war against him in this same fashion as, as, as a team, as a community, because serious conflict requires more than one individual. In the realm of the military, there are military branches, there are battalions, there are divisions, there are units, there are groups, and there are teams. That's the best I could do with the list, okay? But all of those are groups of people. There is plurality in every one of those illustrations and every one of those manifestations because warring done on your own is dangerous. Okay, you cannot be effective in national warring on your own. And so this, in this text, Paul has called us to individual preparation so that we can stand in the conflict. But the implication of the text that follows immediately hereupon is that we are in that battle together. That there is a sense of community that is involved in this warring. So verse 18, as he moves on, he says this. He says, stand firm then... Verse 14, right? That's the way verse 14 starts. And then he gives us participles. Put on this, do this, do this, do this. None of the things that we are told to do are actual warring, right? They're all preparation for warring. They're us putting on the armor that protects us against assaults. But it's interesting that he then says that we stand by verse 18, which is another participle, we stand by praying in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for what? All of the Lord's people. This is the first time in this listing of armor of preparation for battle that Paul actually calls us into action. Everything else is us putting this on and putting that on, but we're not told to do anything. Okay, but when you come to this portion of the preparation for battle, we are called not only to put on praying, but we are also called to practice prayer. 
Oswald Chambers this, this, said this. He said, prayer is not preparation for battle. Prayer is the battle. It is the means by which we engage and war for the glory of God, which demonstrates that we are not dependent upon our own sufficiency, but that we are desperately dependent on the power of God working in and through our lives. And so he calls us to pray in the spirit. I think the simplest implication of that is to pray with God as God guides, as God directs, as God burdens. I don't know about you, but this may be another part of getting past 60. I find myself waking up almost every night around 3.30. In that hour, I am trying to cultivate a pattern. Now, you may ask, what wakes you up? The truth is, I'm not sure, okay? It's not what you're all thinking, okay? <laughs> right, Nurse Ed, I know what you're thinking. That's not what it is, okay? I stay in my bed when I wake up, okay? I, I honestly think a lot of times it's you roll over, you don't know how much you're moving, the shoulder strikes, pain, and you're awake, and you don't know why you're awake, because you weren't awake to feel it, okay? But you're awake after it, okay? But there is this sense of saying, God, give me a burden. Give me someone to, to war on behalf of. Someone to join arms with as we engage in the struggle that is essentially the Christian life, living as God's people in a world that is under the power and sway of the evil one. And so we war in prayer by asking God to bring victory in specific circumstances, praying for people in sickness, that God's healing would be present, that he would be delivering from the bondage of sin, all kinds of prayers and all kinds of requests. But in the context, it, it, prayer is our means of warring together, right? It's done in community and as a community. And so when Paul encourages us to this activity of warring, he says, keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. The implication is pray all the time for all of God's people. As you sense that burden that may be present in a friend's life to take that and say, God, I am lifting that person. I am praying for that need. One of the ones that I've been praying for, for Mike Lorraine as he battles with cancer. God, bring strength and healing to Mike's body. I think of marital situations that I'm dealing with personally in my sphere of ministry, that God would show up in that circumstance and do something glorious, fight for those people to bring them back into a proper relationship with one another and also with you. So prayer in this setting. So, so the preparation for warring assumes community, that we go into battle as a team. But prayer is the means and expression of our warring together. It is, there is a, a decided corporate focus here. The emphasis is a mutual intercession unceasing. And I think that's why in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, Paul says to the church, pray without ceasing. Why? Because prayer is the warring that we prepare for on a daily basis by being knowledgeable of the armor of God that protects us. And once that armor is put on, we then move into battle for one another. And one of the main expressions of that conflict is prayer. I think it's why in, in, in Ephesians 1.16 and in Ephesians 3.14, Paul says two times, 
to the church in Ephesus, as he pours out his heart for them, he says, I constantly pray for you. And it's spiritual warning. I want you to remember who you are. I want you to know that you're his inheritance. I want you to know that you are the, the, the object of his affection and protection. Paul wants them to become conscious because when I'm conscious of that through community, what happens? I, I have a greater capacity and ability to stand in the conflict. So prayer is the means and the expression of we're warring together with a decidedly corporate focus. And then verse 19, Paul does something interesting. He moves out of that corporate focus to what I'm going to just describe as an individual or it's personal. You know, it's very easy for us to think of the apostle Paul as a quasi super saint, right? That because of his calling from God and because of his gifting from God and because of the strength that we see exhibited throughout his experience in the book of Acts, we tend to see Paul as someone who does it on his own, don't we? We see Paul as kind of a, as one writer called it, a pious particle that survives in isolation doing God's work. And if you think that, you have a complete misunderstanding of Paul's life. I love how in verse 19, he moves from praying for everyone all the time, warring, to a very personal expression of his need. He says in verse 19, pray for me, pray for the acute need that I'm experiencing right now. And he describes it, doesn't he? In verse 20, he says, I'm an ambassador in chains. I mean, I am enduring imprisonment because of faithful witness to the gospel of Christ. And in that setting, Paul does not assume that he has what it takes, that he just needs to get his act together. No, what he does is he says to the church in Ephesus and to many others, as you read his letters, he says, pray for me. Verse 19, look what it says. Pray for me that whenever I speak, now listen to this, words may be given to me. So that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in change. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Now here's what I think is happening. I think Paul is on the face, very clearly expressing, here's a way that you can be lifting me up. Here's a way that you can come by my side and war with me in the calling that God has given me. Right? He's calling in troops. He's calling in help. But, but what, what is amazing to me is that, that Paul is clearly expressing and sharing a deep felt personal need. A sense that I need God's presence. I need God's power. And I need you to know. And I need to know that you know. That I'm in this situation. It's powerful isn't it? Paul isn't just there. You know kind of gutting it out. And being faithful to God. Paul needs to know. That others know of his circumstance. Why? Folks because there is something very powerful. When you're in the midst of a struggle and someone reaches out to you in our age via a text, a phone call, they write you a note and they say, I just want you to know that I am aware of your situation first. 
And secondly, in your situation, I am praying for you. There is, and sometimes people will, will they'll, they'll, they'll send that text, like, how did you even know? And here's my conviction. My conviction, God puts it on their heart to be praying, to be lifting, to be supporting and strengthening. And when you know that that is happening on your behalf, and I think that's what Paul is wanting to know as he transparently shares needs. See, here's what we tend to do. We tend to hide needs and we tend to hide struggles and we are weaker for it. You know why? Because we are warring alone. It is not until, according to this text, that I call in that, that, that actual warring, that prayer that's needed. And I can only call for that by being transparent in the expression of my needs and weaknesses. Otherwise, I am isolated, alone, and like Peter, vulnerable. So Paul brings it into individual focus. The need is to share in the context of relationships, our needs. You know, as I was working on this part of the sermon, I thought about people in our church family. Yeah, perhaps you have been disappointed in your church relationships. Perhaps you have been offended or hurt or uh, betrayed. It's hard to get back in the zone. It's hard to avail yourself of what you so desperately need because you're harboring fears and sometimes even resentments. And I want to encourage you and challenge you this morning to move, move out of that stuff that holds you back and that keeps you from the community and the family that God designed you for. Don't nourish and nurture those kinds of wounds because they will drive you into deeper isolation and deeper disappointment. Okay, it is critical, folks that we take a cue from Paul in this text and we decide that when I have needs, I need to make people aware that it's one of the ways that I engage in warning. Because here's what typically happens. When someone says to you, hey, I have this specific need, would you pray for me? That there is a serious tendency, and I think it's a good thing, to reciprocate with that person, to team up with them, to come into community together, to do this thing called Christian living and warring for the glory of God together. So share your needs. And as you share your needs, listen to the needs that are present in the life of others and begin to war with them. That is the clear and solid implication of this text that Paul found strength in the context of his community. What is it that Paul is praying for? All right, we know that he does it. But what is it that he's praying for? And I think, I think it can be described in this concept. Faithfulness in difficult times is tied to what we call in the context of our church, vital relationships. So when we talk about vital relationships, we're talking about relationships that are essential to successful Christian living. Okay, with an understanding that God has called us into a group, into a family, into a temple, in which he lives by his spirit. So that we, we have been called by God to enjoy community, to enjoy family and relationships. 
And it is in that context that Paul anticipates the experience of effectiveness. I'm, I'm reluctant to use the word success, but because the terminology is warring, there is this idea that Paul is seeking in the context of their love and affection and prayer, he is seeking success in his own standing. Does that make sense? He's not isolated. He's, he's tying his capacity to serve God effectively to their knowledge of his circumstance and to their prayer for his circumstance. And so in, in verses 19 and 20, he gets very specific. He says, pray for me that whenever I speak, verse 19, words may be given so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. What is he saying? He's saying that when I speak, I, I want to know that God is behind what I'm saying, that he is empowering and, 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 and inspiring the words that I'm speaking. He's, he's bringing truth and clarity through a willing vessel. Paul says, pray that for me. One writer said this. He said, Paul desires the liberty of the spirit, of the spirit to, to express freely, clearly, and boldly God's truth. He's praying that God in the midst of the fulfillment of his divine calling would show up. And I think in this, there's something beautiful because Paul is actually claiming a promise of Jesus, isn't he? In Luke chapter 21, it tells us, uh, Jesus says, when you're, when you're taken before the tribunals and, and they demand that you give an answer for why you believe what you believe, this is, here's Jesus' words, this is your opportunity to tell about me. Don't worry, I will give you the right words and wisdom to communicate it boldly. And the implication of that is that as you move in obedience and in community into the calling that God has for you, that he will supply the words that are necessary to accurately and clearly and boldly proclaim the truth that people need to hear. Such a beautiful, beautiful calling that Paul lays hold of. Why is it that Paul is so intent about this, why is the request so acute and clear? And I think it's because of what he says in verse 20. He says, pray that I will make known fearlessly, verse 19, the word of God that I will fulfill my calling, verse 20, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Now, if you know what an ambassador is, a, a state dignitary, okay, I doubt that outside of a criminal investigation that you have seen a state dignitary in handcuffs. Okay, and the irony of the text is that Paul is an ambassador. He's someone going before the Roman emperor to proclaim the good news of Christ. But as he goes, he is a dignitary in chains. I want you to think with me real quick. What would the purpose of those chains be? Why has Paul been bound? Why has Paul been shackled and placed in house arrest? It's a question that this text begs very clearly. What's the purpose of the chains? I believe the purpose of the chains in this context is to restrict, to intimidate, and silence Paul. 
In other words, we'll threaten him in hopes that he will become silent. We'll bind him in shackles with the hopes that he will become silent. But Paul says to the church, watch what he says. He says, I am an ambassador in chains for the gospel. An ambassador in chains. Pray that in that setting, I may declare the gospel fearlessly as I should. The word there is fascinating. As is necessary is the idea. Okay, Paul's saying, when the, when the day comes for me to stand, pray. Pray that I will be able to stand boldly and with some degree of God-given confidence and courage so that I may speak the word of God boldly as I should. That is in accordance with my calling as an apostle of Christ. Pray. Pray that I will do it. Pray that the purpose of the chains will not, that the, pray that the chains will not achieve their goal or intent in my life, but rather, end of verse 20, that I will proclaim it boldly as I should, that I would be worthy. And I think what Paul is saying is pray that I won't fail. It's a fascinating request from a man of Paul's caliber, isn't it? And I think it starts to lay out a path, a direction that you and I need to move in when we sense that we're moving into a season of struggle. That we would not try to fight on our own, but instead we would lean into the community that God has called us to be part of. That we would enjoy the benefits of mutual encouragement and the prayer of others for our success in doing the will of God. Folks, may God help us to not live in isolation. It's fascinating that Paul's prayer is not that he would escape prison. In the American church, I think that would be our first prayer, right? If someone is in prison for the gospel, our first prayer would be, God, get them out. Right? What's Paul's prayer? Paul's prayer is not for escape. Paul's prayer is that he simply might be faithful. That no matter what the circumstance is that he finds himself embroiled in, that in that setting, he would be the voice that God had called him to be. And that he would find success in the clear, bold, and free proclamation of the gospel in spite of chains. May God give us that kind of perspective. It's interesting, if you read along, that you'll see, in, in, particularly in the book of Ephesians, you're going to find that that prayer for impact in Caesar's household is answered. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 22, Paul says, uh, God's people greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. How would people in Caesar's household hear the gospel and be converted? You know how? Through a witness that is bold, clear, and free. And Paul, Paul prayed for that kind of impact. And it becomes very clear. You read, if you go to Acts 28, 30 to 31, you find the same type of a discussion. That Paul, to the end, is faithfully making known the word of God in spite of his imprisonment. So can I draw a practical application to what happens here on a weekly basis? Each Sunday... One of the members of the pastoral team here at the chapel has the God-given responsibility to clearly, boldly, 
freely and fearlessly. Proclaim the word of God. Right? In season and out of season, when it's appropriate and acceptable, and when it's not, to be faithful to our calling. So could we as a pastoral team ask you that if God wakes you up Sunday morning at 3.30, would you pray for us? Would you pray that we would do God's work in our setting to make God's word known boldly, freely, clearly, as we should, in spite of whatever chains, whatever restrictions may be present in our lives? Because that is God's call to us to bless you. And then may we reciprocate that by devoting ourselves to prayer for you. You see how that works? It's, it's, it's not come to church as a consumer, get what I came to the store for and take it home with me. No, it's a reciprocal relationship because we are a family, we are a community, we are a building of God as the church. And we have unique responsibilities to one another that God so desires for us to fulfill. Verse 21, then, Paul gives us one simple example of what he is urging for his own life. And watch what happens. Paul says, Tychicus, I know I'm going to struggle saying this name every time, but bear with me. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you may know how I am doing and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose so that you may know how we are and so that he may encourage you. Okay, so what's happened? Paul is in house arrest in Rome. He sends Tychicus to the church in Ephesus as a means of encouragement and as a means of information. Okay, so two things happen here. Paul says, so that you can know our condition my feelings, what I'm facing, so that you can know what I'm enduring, so that you can pray for me. And that's part of what happens here in this text. But he also says, I'm sending Tychicus so that you can be encouraged. And it's a fascinating word here. I looked it up actually expecting that it would be this word in the original language. The idea of that he may encourage you is that he might be a paraclete to you. He may serve as a spirit-filled servant of God for your benefit and encouragement to raise you out of any potential discouragement that you were facing in your life at this time. So Paul, he says, I am sending my beloved brother. There is this idea of deep affection, my dear brother. Also, he is faithful. That is, he is trustworthy and utterly reliable. He is sent so that you may know our condition. That's Paul expressing his need, and so that you may be encouraged, that's Paul through Tychicus meeting their need. Do you see what happens? There's a book that talks about the church, and one of the ways that it talks about the church and the dynamic of what we should experience is this. It says that when we come to the body of Christ, we are needy, so we come to receive, and we are needed, so we come to serve. Does that make sense? So that's Paul's vision here. He's sending Tychicus to them so they will know about what his needs are, his circumstance, the direness of it, the stresses of it. But he's also sending Tychicus so that they can be encouraged. So the church in Thessalonica, in Paul's 
view is seen as a group of people that have needs and as a group of people that can help to meet his needs by praying for him. Does that make sense? So the idea is not that, that they are consumers. They are people that are consuming help and encouragement so that they can serve and minister to the Apostle Paul as well. Folks, I hope that we can capture that kind of vision from a man who, who, who is uniquely gifted, who is obviously courageous, and yet is willing to express his own weakness. It's fascinating. I did something this week as I was looking through this text. I, I did a survey of the New Testament, particularly the end of Paul's letters where he talks about relationships. And he, if you read through the end of Paul's letters, you're going to see he is repeatedly talking about individuals and groups of people that are crucial to the success of his warring and walk. Okay? And, and I'll just give you these as illustrations. First thing noted is in the, in the second half of the book of Acts, which is largely about Paul's ministry, first half Peter, second half largely Paul, you will find that Paul never travels alone. It's interesting. He never does the work in isolation. Secondly, in Acts chapter 20, when he is expressing his appreciation for people around him, he personally names eight people. In Romans 16, this, this number shocked me. In Romans 16, Paul names 37 individuals. Think about that. His team. And the, 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 apart from God's work in his life by the Spirit, the ground of his success. And the reason for his stability is that he had built around himself those strong Knowing he was weak, he built around himself a team of people who would hold him up, lift him up, strengthen him, and make him successful in the work that God had called him to do. 1 Corinthians 16, seven names and numerous groups. Colossians 4, eight people. 2 Timothy, the last letter that Paul writes, he names 18 individuals who have made a difference in his life. Folks, do you start to get a sense that if the majority of the letters in the New Testament end with expressions of gratitude for what has been received. Because Paul knew that in spite of his strength and calling and gifting, he was still a needy man. The implication of that on our lives is dramatic. And it should deeply influence how we envision our life together when you say, I am a participant in worship at the chapel. I hope that you do not simply come as a spectator to observe the happenings and to applaud that was nice, that was good. But I hope that you come needy and needed. I hope that you connect at a deeper level than simply filling a chair. Because the vision that God has for the church and the blessing he wants to draw you into is so much bigger and larger and more robust than that. So I hope you will learn from Paul's example and from this text. And I was thinking about my own, uh, my own life. I have 
I don't know if it's because my, my needs are so acute that I am actually aware of them. But I am very conscious in my life of the power and importance of relationships. I'm just, it's just so obvious that I need help. And all you said, amen. <laughs> no, I'm just saying in, in, in every area where I have experienced some level of, and I don't, I don't like the word success because it's not, it's not the word I'm after. So understand how I use it, okay? If I've experienced any sense of effectiveness, there's a better word. It is almost always owing to a team of people around me. And I, find, I have found that true not only in life in the church, but I've also found that to be true in the realm of work. You know why? In the realm of building a business. You know why? Because that's God's design. That's the beauty of life together is that we are better together than we are when we're alone. So I'm in the midst of some stuff on my computer. Okay, with an online business thing I'm working on. Okay, and I have to tell you, the level of frustration and ungodliness in your pastor <laughs> is shocking even to him. Okay, <laughs> my wife has never said I'm so surprised like that. I and you know what I have to do? I have to find someone who knows something about that profound area of weakness in my life who can meet that need and get me to where. I need to be who can make me better together than I am by myself. Because by myself in that realm, I am a disaster. I'm a mess. And that's just a lesson that God's taught me. He's emphasized for me that you, you're always better together. And from the beginning of this text, warring is done in community, in battalions, in divisions, in groups, in teams. The same thing is true in your Christian life. You can try to go it alone. I'm going to tell you something. If you look at the life of Peter the Apostle, it's pretty darn impressive. But it is in isolation that he fails dramatically. And it happens to be that that isolation was driven by pride that even though all the others fail you, I will not fail you. And immediately following that, within 24 hours, he is a hot mess, as we said last week. He's a disaster. Sought out by the Savior, reunited to community, and effective to the end of his life. So you may be in a season like that where you're, you're beat up. You're feeling isolated and ineffective. Folks, there's only one answer. Find one person today that you can share that burden with. And then find another. Don't let them gossip, okay? Unless you want them to share the request, okay? But make sure it's clear, okay? But find someone with whom you can be honest, like Paul was about his needs, his weaknesses, so that they can come alongside of you and war with you in prayer for you. And as you are conscious of that, and as you begin to experience the answer to those prayers, you will find yourself becoming more effective than you are in your own capacity. Because God will join with you. Let me just close by saying this. I hope that you will fear isolation. I hope you fear it. 
You know, it's fascinating to me that even Jesus, the night he was betrayed, he took the 11 that remained and he went with him into the Garden of Gethsemane where he would war in prayer. He went in with the 11. He took three further. Apparently, for whatever reasons we don't know, but three that were closer confidants. Why did he not go alone? Because in his humanity, he was conscious of his weakness. He was conscious of the struggle that laid before them. And so as he went to war before his father for success in the mission of the cross, he takes people with him. Folks, I, simple observation. If Jesus sensed the need to endure his awful hour in community, then certainly I need the same thing. So fear isolation. Secondly, cultivate a habit of prayer for others as a starting point. Start to develop a habit of knowing the needs of others and lifting those needs and beginning to communicate, literally talking about men, the struggles that we face. Invest in relationships and never underestimate. Do not let Satan convince you that they are not valuable, that they're only hurtful. Do it in formal ways and do it in informal ways. You know, I grew up in a church setting where, wow, Doug, I don't know how long we used to stay after church on Sunday night, but I think it was a long time, right? Over the years, uh, just cultivating relationships with people that we were sharing life together with, sometimes not as deep as what we hoped for, but deep enough to make a difference. Do you see? I can have imperfect relationships, and I do. But the fact that they're there, that there's a safety net there, that if struggle comes, there's someone to pick me back up and to help me. So invest in relationships and never underestimate their value. In conclusion, I want to just draw attention to three circumstances that we are all very aware of. I thought of, uh, I thought of Diana Kelly when I was looking through this text and looking at the importance of relationships, because she's become an example to me. She leads a Bible study on Tuesday nights in the midst of her sickness. And she does it for two reasons. One is that she and her struggle is needy. And the other is that in her struggle, she is needed. So she is a group of people that she draws close to on a weekly basis to share not life, but the struggle together. And I, 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 I didn't get the aspect of this. I wanted to, but I didn't get time to. I am sure that Victor's heart is encouraged by knowing that it's not all on him. You follow what I'm saying? It's not all on him. There's People within the broader scope of the body of Christ that are taking her and carrying her before God. But those people that are doing that are experiencing, because I've talked to some of them, they're experiencing a blessing they, they cannot put into words. Because as they come to help, they're receiving help. That's the beauty of the body of Christ.
And that's the way it should be. Two ladies in our church run a ministry called Grief Share, Laura Mack and Fran Pelch. The genius of Grief Share is not that individuals get together privately and contemplate their grief. The beauty of Grief Share is that people come together and share their grief in the hopes that it will be mitigated over time. Do you see? The genius, is, uh, the genius of that, the wisdom of that, is that it captures what we are. We're community. And when we have a unique need, we may need to draw aside together with a group of people who have a, a common problem or struggle. And that's what's happening in Grisha. It's one of the most beautiful things, I think, that happens in the context of this church. There's a beauty in seeing people share a need and see that need mitigated by the grace of God as they talk about the gospel and come to understand all that's happening in that season of grief. Friend and Laura get that, and I'm thankful. I've been involved uh, recently in the youth ministry here at our church, and I know I don't look like a youth pastor, okay? And I don't claim to be one, to be honest with you. But there was a need, so we said, okay, we'll, we'll help out with this. Here's what I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for that in the context of developing that ministry, there are a few people, Dan and Candace, Chris, Becky, Brittany, all at different levels, but all at some level willing to share the burden and the responsibility. Here's my conviction. If some were not willing to interrupt their pleasant evenings, to spend time with partially insane adolescents, who I like to refer to as pre-people, and I say that to their faces. So you can't be people yet, because if you were people, you wouldn't act like that. You're pre-people. But the fact that those people are willing to engage makes someone who is too old to do this at some level, effective. And I tell these people that if you weren't here, this could not work. I don't have that in me. So do you understand? Anything worth doing is worth doing together. That's the vision of this text. That we would humble ourselves and express that we are needy because that's the hard part, isn't it? If I share my need, people might think less of me. So I sit in silence, being destroyed from the inside out. And when it finally falls apart, everybody's like, I never knew that you were struggling. Because you never told anybody. So you have to have the courage. The courage, the guts. To say, I need help. And then you have to have the humility to say... When someone comes, I can help you. Not because there's anything necessarily spectacular about me. But that because God in his wisdom is designed to use us. To influence and impact one another's lives for his glory. Let God invade your personal space. And let him express to you, reveal to you the value and preciousness of others. And the importance of life together. And all of that will require a humble heart. 
You know, the Apostle Paul, as we move into communion this morning, the Apostle Paul said to the church, he said, have this mind in you that also was in Christ Jesus. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross for your saving, for your benefit, because you were needy. He gave his life and he paid the price for your sin so that you could be drawn into and enjoy not only a relationship with him, but a relationship with the broader picture of the body of Christ. You know, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, I pray that we will do it needy. I pray that we'll partake of the symbols of what was required for our forgiveness and for our salvation. And that we will say, God, this is what I need. And I will partake of those elements as a child of God and join corporately together because we are the family and household of God. And that as we partake, we will remind ourselves... That our saving was won by the warring of Christ. Ultimately through the cross. Where he stood in my place, bore the full consequence for my sin. And offers to everyone who believes forgiveness and hope. As the elements are passed around today, the word very simply put is this. If you have trusted Christ... If you have a personal saving knowledge of what Christ accomplished for you on Calvary's cross, the encouragement that Paul gives is eat that bread and drink that cup. Before doing that, he says, let each one examine themselves and then eat that bread and drink that cup. And when we do it, we proclaim our common hope as the family of God, which is found in and through the cross of Christ. So my prayer this morning is that you remember the lesson about relationships and you'll celebrate in the Lord's table the mindset that makes it possible a servant serving others through the cross. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, as we come before you this morning to celebrate the Lord's table, we're conscious, Lord, that as we do it, we make known, we proclaim as our personal, individual hope, the blood of Christ, shed for us, the body of Christ, broken for us so that we might be freed from our sin and made part of a larger community called the family of God where we are needy and needed. So Father, my prayer this morning is that as we enjoy this celebration of your table together as family, that we will partake with deep gratitude to you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done for us in forgiving us and with deep gratitude for the fact that in new birth you have brought us into your family as your children and you've given us life together as a gift to cherish and treasure. Exalt yourself as we partake and as we sing and we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen.
you just stand and join us in singing this wonderful, merciful Savior, and then we'll partake of the elements together. Wonderful, merciful Savior. Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend. Who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? Oh, you rescue the souls of men. Counselor, Counselor, Comforter, Keeper, Spirit we long to embrace. You offer hope when our hearts have hopelessly lost the way. Oh, we've hopelessly lost the way. I couldn't help but thinking, as Tim was preaching today, when you come to 1 Corinthians 11, the wonderful passage that we always read, that it's a community passage. And so before he even talks about taking this, he says this. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry 
and another one gets drunk. And Paul goes on to say, when you do this, you do it as a community of faith. You, you vertically are expressing your incredible love for God that then feeds into what we do as a group. And what we do as a group reinforces our relationship with God vertically. So he says, For I received from the Lord what I, what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he went on to say, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, may we never lose the wonder of the cross. That Jesus Christ... God the Son has come to redeem us, forgiven us. He's in the process of transforming us both individually and as a corporate group. Would you continue that good work within us and among us, Lord, that we might reflect as a people who you are and how humanity was meant to live? Thank you for our redemption, our salvation, our forgiveness, our transformation. We pray, Lord, and know with confidence that you will continue that good work. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Um, before we go on to our music to go out, um, I was not supposed to do this today, and I did not even clear this with PT or Doug. Um, but God had other plans, as my notes from the sermon are going to show you. Um, so before we dismiss, I just have a really quick announcement. And I just really want everybody to start praying about this. More information is going to come in the next couple of weeks. And um, PT is really big lately on everything going out through email. But sometimes I feel like you need to put a name with the face. Because we have so many new people since covid and some of us were gone a long time during COVID. So my name is Sherry Miller, and along with Christina Nolly, who is um, out in the foyer, um, we're going to head up VBS this year. But as um, PT talked several times about today, and I took a few really good notes, thank you so much, because this is totally God. Um, when we go to war, we don't send a hero, we send a team. Um, so even though I have a partner, the two of us cannot do this alone. Um, we're like the admin team behind it, you know, like to take care of the ordering and like the logistics. But it takes a team of people to run VBS. 
Um, there are so many different parts, whether you want a big part, a small part, a medium part, we just, there's something for everyone to do. So I would just encourage you to pray about what God calls you to do, because this is such an opportunity to reach our community and our children. And it's not just the children we have an opportunity to reach, it's the parents of those children as well. Um, so it's, it's such an important ministry. And obviously two years ago in 2020, we had no VBS because of COVID. And then last year I was asked, you know, Sherry, are we going to do VBS? And it was just really with the mask thing and, and the division of, you know, schools were still wearing masks. We weren't wearing them in church. I just didn't feel like it was fair for my volunteers to have to be mask police. And, um, you know, I really just wasn't comfortable going there last year because we really were still up in the air. So um, this year, with no masks, we are going full force ahead um, with a normal five-day VBS. Our VBS, if you're new, is in the evenings. So if you say, oh, I work during the day, Sherry, I can't help. That's why we made it in the evening, just so that you can help. Um, but um, as PT said, um, we're challenged to not just be observers here at the chapel. We're challenged to be participants. Um, God didn't build um, individuals. He was building battalions and teams and division, divisions um, for battle and that anything worth doing is worth doing together. So I would just encourage you, if you like um, children, um, there's many roles that are directly working with children, but if you're not a children person, you might be great at the front door to we sit at the registration table. We have many ladies that serve snacks because we give the kids a snack every day. Um, there's just so many areas. So please start praying about it. More information will come out after Easter, um, but it is the week of June 20th. We are getting a jump start. We're gonna be one of the first ones in the area to have VBS because schools get out super early this year. So just please start praying. If you have any questions, I'd be more than happy to talk to you about it. But um, spread the word, VBS is coming here at the chapel. And um, I would love to see so many new faces helping in that. So sorry that I totally did this impromptu, but Tim, it just, God had other plans today. So thank you. So there's the application for all of you. All right, so seek out Sherry. Thank you, Sherry. God bless you. Walk with him this week.